So, dear Lord God, we ask you now to uh, minister to us through your word, through your written, written word, through Holy Scripture. And we ask that as we study your holy word, and in particular as we study David and the Psalms, we ask that you would um, reveal to us um, your word made flesh, your son Jesus Christ, that as we study your written word, um, your word made flesh would be manifest in our midst, that we would see him and know him and take great hope and comfort from what you give to us through him, that great love that you have for us. So we ask all of this in the strong name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. So now, um, again, sorry, I apologize for the lack of handouts. It, this is the eighth part. We didn't put this on the um, purple sheet, so if you didn't see this and you didn't know, this is part eight of eight. And essentially what I've been doing for eight different classes, I've been looking at the Psalms of David and looking at, um, the, there are 14 Psalms that are in particular attributed just to King David. And so I've been looking at those because they're associated with particular events in his life. So um, there's this whole, I'm going to do 30 seconds for those of you who've been around, you can you can zone out for a minute because you already know this. But um, King David was um, known to be a musician. He played the lyre when he was out with the sheep in the field. He played the, um, harp, the lyre to caused King Saul to calm down because King Saul kept getting <laughs> aggravated. It says by an evil spirit he was aggravated. He would get angry and distressed and disturbed. And David, the boy David, would play for him and he would be soothed and calmed. So we know he was a musician. And we know also that when he became king, he was also involved in writing music. There are many songs that are attributed to him and we're not sure if he wrote every single one of them. But we know that he was connected with them somehow, whether he wrote them himself, he commissioned them, or they were made in the style of ones that he had written. And so we see several, several, several um, psalms throughout the book of Psalms that are attributed to King David. He also, we do know that he actually wrote some of those psalms because Psalm 18, for example, is a psalm that, it, that appears in its entirety in 2 Samuel. So first and second Samuel tell about the life of David, and we also hear somewhat about his life in um, First Chronicles. Um, some of those historical books, which if you're doing the Bible in a year blog, we haven't gotten there yet. They're coming up, and we get some repetition, but it's really nice to hear the stories of the kings of Israel and Judah. And they start, of course, with King David and before him with King Saul. And so we see in First and Second Samuel, and Second Samuel says of David, first of all, that he was the sweet psalmist of Israel. So he actually wrote some psalms. And then he also included is one of his whole entire psalms. So he wrote, he played music, he wrote psalms, and then we also know that he codified the musical traditions of Israel. So what he did was, just as Moses, through Moses, God said, well, when you worship me at the Ark of the Covenant, when you stand in my presence, this is what you must do. You must sacrifice this animal, you must present yourself as holy by doing thus and such. All of those rules and laws and regulations were passed down through Moses to the people of Israel for the generations to come. Well, we don't have all of the specifics written out and we've lost some of the meanings of the words, but through King David, the Lord codified the music surrounding the Ark of the Covenant. I don't always remember that there's music there, but when they would worship in Jerusalem, when the temple was still built, when the temple before the temple was destroyed, they would come into Jerusalem and they would worship with their voices. They would sing, they would play all sorts of instruments, and they would, um, they would even dance. 
though we don't, we don't have liturgical dancing here, but you can imagine um, there was music and there was dancing, and through David, a lot of these regulations were put in place. Well, what do you sing when? How do we know to sing Lo, How a Rose Air Blooming on le during lessons and carols? Well, tradition tells us. Um, and so David set up the tradition for the people of Israel of how they would worship surrounding the Ark of the Covenant. And so we've carried throughout these eight classes, we've looked at these different psalms that are associated with specific events in David's life. And most of these psalms, oddly enough, have to do with great trial and great suffering. Basically, someone trying to kill David all throughout his life. In his early life, it was King Saul. King Saul tried to kill him over ten times. So he was always on the run from the moment he was anointed as the new king until the moment of Saul's death. He was an outcast. He was in, in exile, and he was running all around the Palestinian countryside trying to flee Saul. And many of the psalms that we have that are attributed specifically to David are associated with some of those events. When he was on the run, when someone betrayed him and handed him over to Saul, when this happened, when that happened. And as you can imagine, the content of those psalms is um, essentially a cry for help, a prayer to God saying, what are you doing? You've got to help me. Or um, after the fact saying, wow, I was in trouble and you really helped me. Thank you. So we see that um, in these psalms, they are psalms as a genre. Are, um, they're prayers. They're poems because they're written with meter and even with rhyme in the original language and with some standards of Hebrew poetry which might uh, boggle our minds because they're so different than what we have in our English poetry. And then there are also songs. How many songs do we have in our heads that just get in there and we can't stop thinking about them? Well, these psalms, these prayers and poems directed to God got into the heads of the Hebrew people. They got into the heads of the Israelites and they would sing them over and over again. They would repeat them and they, were, they knew them by heart, so many of them. And we'll see that in a minute, how, that they did in fact know them by heart because Jesus quotes them a lot. And the New Testament quotes the psalms an incredible amount, and especially we're going to see today how the New Testament quotes the Psalms, and in specific the Psalms about David and some of the things that the Lord told David at the end of his life. The New Testament looks back and says, that is about Jesus. So we're going to look today about how the Psalms predict and prophesy the coming of the Messiah, of Jesus Christ. And so when we do that, we need to go first to 2 Samuel chapter 7. And um, I'm just going to read a little bit from 2 Samuel chapter 7. You have it on your handout, but if you don't have a handout, not to worry, you can listen. Um, so this is at the end of day, or this is after David has finally come to sit on the throne. He's finally free from running for his life. He's there in Jerusalem. He has built his own house and his own city of David, Zion is what it's called. And he says to the Lord, okay, now that I've built myself a house, you, the, your presence, which is associated specifically with the Ark of the Covenant, well, Lord, your presence, you've been wandering for a long time. You've been living in a tent. Why should I get to live in a gorgeous palace? while you're still living in a tent. And so he offers to build a house for God, a temple for the Lord. And so and Nathan, the prophet during David's reign, remember Nathan goes to him about Bathsheba. Nathan says to him, yeah, that's right. Yeah, you should build a house. That's good. That's good. And then he goes home and he sleeps on it. 
And the Lord speaks to him, and he, and he changes his mind. And he comes back to David the next day. And what we have in verse 5 is um, Nathan returning to David and saying, so um, I'm starting in verse 4. That same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel to whom I commanded whom I commanded to shepherd my people of Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place, and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. There are promises in there. Keep listening. There's another promise coming up. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the son of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Wow. Isn't that so, we're so much like David. We go to God and we say, Lord, what can I do for you? What can I do to um, serve God? How can I serve him? And indeed, the desire to serve God is always a good thing. And it, it might be that he does ask us to do something specific to us that we can do. Sometimes he calls us to do certain things. But it's true that whatever he calls us to do, what it is that he does for us, um, before we serve him, his promises to us are so great. They're greater, and the gift that he gives to us is so much greater than any gift we could even hope to offer to him. And so there David is hoping to build God a house, and God says, no, I'm going to build you a house. I'm going to build you a dynasty, and your son will reign on the throne forever, and the kingdom will be established forever. So we see right here in 2 Samuel chapter 7, this is the historical origin of all of the Hebrew messianic hopes. All of the hopes that would be brought, about, brought out later in the prophets, everything, all of those wonderful things we heard today from Micah, from Isaiah, and all of those lessons during Lessons and Carols, those all were after this promise that God made to David. And as time went on, the people of Israel looked to David's offspring, his heir, his royal heir, to see the fulfillment of God's promises. Um, so there is within this promise, this is, um, it never says within this passage, 2 Samuel 7, it never says this is a covenant. 
but it has all of the language of ancient Near Eastern covenants. And we see elsewhere in scripture that there was a covenant made um, to Abraham. And the covenant to Abraham is echoed here in this covenant to David. So first of all, well, what is a covenant? Well, a covenant, we talk about marriage. Marriage is a covenant. Marriage is a, a pact, an agreement between two people where each person makes promises to the other person right? And we have a special special ceremony <coughs> for marriage, at least, where we recognize that this is the covenant that's being made. These are the promises that are being made, and we set them apart. Um, and in this covenant that God makes with David and his offspring, he covenants and promises certain things. He promises that his steadfast love would never depart from David's offspring, from David's heir. He promises that David's heir would be his son, his own son. And it's interesting here because we look back with um, Christian glasses when we read this and we say, well, Jesus is God's son and he is actually God himself. He and the Father are one in the Trinity. There are three persons, one God, and we believe in a Trinitarian God, a triune God. But for the Hebrews, they couldn't wrap their minds around that. That was not their expectation. They believed that God would in some way um, impart something to their king that would make him like an adopted son of God. Not God in substance, but um, in retrospect, we can look back and say they believed that and they didn't even know how great God was going to um, make his son. That God was going to give them his own even um, same substance son. Any questions about that? That's a tough one to wrap our minds around. Um, sonship, adoption, and that Jesus is, in fact, of the same substance as the Father. He is divine. Um, and that was part of what was blowing their mind in the first century. They couldn't fathom that Jesus would be one in the same with God the Father, that he would be of the same substance. And that took a couple <laughs> centuries for the Christians to wrap their minds around that. Any thoughts about that? So there's this promise that this heir of David would be God's own son and we see that fulfilled in Jesus and again there's that pledge of steadfast love that the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever and that steadfast love God is promising to David's heir and through David's heir he's promising that steadfast love to the people of Israel too and then even extending that beyond just the people of Israel to the people of the whole world and so this also there are aspects in which this covenant that God makes with David um fulfills and mirrors the covenant that he made with Abraham. Um, because in Genesis 12, all throughout Genesis, we see promises made by God to Abraham. Promise, uh, he promises in chapter 12 that he would make Abraham's name great. And then he promises in chapter 15 of Genesis that he would give to Abraham's offspring, um, that he would give him many offspring, and that many nations would be blessed through his offspring. Um, so he would have this special offspring. And then in Genesis 22 and 32, God promises to Abraham that his descendants would be like sand. And he also promises in Genesis 15 that Abraham's descendants would possess the land, the promised land, from Egypt in the south all the way to the north, to the river Euphrates. So he makes all of these promises to Abraham, and they're echoed here in the covenant with David, not just in 2 Samuel 7. 2 Samuel 7, we see this name mentioned, this offspring, and then in 1 Kings 4, we see it fulfilled in David's next, his his son who sits on the throne after him, who is, of course, Solomon. And there it says that the Israelites during Solomon's reign were like, like sand 
on the seashore. They were so numerous, you couldn't even count them. Um, and then he also says that Solomon's kingdom went literally from Egypt all the way up to the Euphrates. Solomon's kingdom was huge, and the promise was fulfilled through, uh, through that kingdom of Solomon. So we see God makes a covenant here with David. Um, any questions about that before I move on and we start to look at some of the Psalms that show these promises? Yes, please. Um, it says that uh, <coughs> the son commits, uh, when he commits inequity, he's referring to Jesus and he does no wrong. So. so this is one of those things, that's right, you're right, Jesus is sinless. When we look at this prophecy of Nathan, and this is one thing about the genre of prophecy in general, and you see it throughout, um, even when we look at Isaiah, for example, some of the prophecies that we read as, you know, as our lessons today, prophecy has this thing, and one of my professors described it this way, and I love the image. You know, when you look at the horizon, and you see mountains in the horizon, it's so hard to tell how far away they are, aren't they? You can sort of see them, and you can see their shape, but you can't tell always, depending on the light, you can't tell some, at times which ones are closer or which ones are further. And so in hindsight, we can say that prophecy of Nathan's was fulfilled in the way the Lord was long-suffering regarding um, David's offspring in those years where the throne was still established in Jerusalem. How many times did they forsake the law and the Lord kept protecting them from outside enemies? Remember, when the kingdoms divide, there's um, after Solomon's reign, the kingdoms divide and the northern kingdom is then centered up in the north, which then later on in Jesus' day and age would become <laughs> Samaria. And the southern kingdom was just the one tribe of Judah. And the Lord preserved um, the throne of David through that one tribe of Judah. And he allowed them to keep on even though they were also unfaithful. He kept, um, you know, punishing them in a sense, disciplining them, trying to bring them back to the <coughs> worship of the one true God. And then in their unfaithfulness, it finally became too much. And so they went into exile after the northern kingdom. First the northern kingdom is taken away by the Assyrians, and then the southern kingdom is taken away by the Babylonians. So yes, that, that bit about the iniquity is for those, um, those fallen very human descendants that preceded Jesus. Does that make sense? But it's, you're right, it's a very good question. It's good to notice that and say, well, we know, how can this all be about Jesus? It's not all about Jesus, but it is also about other people. Any other questions? Okay. Let's move on and let's look at um, David's last will and testament. And we see this coming out. I'm going to read it for you. I didn't, sorry, I didn't give it to you. But I'll just, if you can hear, David at the end of his life in 2 Samuel 23 is, um, is thought to have said, his last words were recorded. And we see a lot of last words of important biblical figures all throughout the Bible. It's really interesting to see how important those final words are in that mindset and in that context. So it's so interesting, by the way, when we get to the New Testament and there are five chapters in the Gospel of John devoted to Jesus' last words. But here, David's last words are kind of, the last words are kind of seen like a final will and testament. And so here David is um, speaking about, he's reflecting on his life and he's looking to the future. And he says, the spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the rain shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. For does not my house 
stand so with God, for he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. For will he not cause to prosper all my help and my desire? Isn't that amazing that in the twilight of his own life, as David was on his deathbed, he could say with hope and confidence that the Lord um, would continue his line forever. He has hope even at the moment of his death because he believes in the Lord and he believes in the word of the Lord that was said to him. He believes in the covenant that God made with him. He knows that he will make good on his promises. And I love the image that he uses. He uses two image, well, he uses, yeah, two images mostly. Um, In verse four, he says, the Lord dawns on men like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. And how many of us think of hope in very tangible ways. I love those tangible images that come right from scripture to look at what is hope like. Hope is like our very dark mornings this time of year. And if you get up as early as I get up, which is actually not that early, you can watch the sunrise. And I can look out. I have the wonderful blessing of having floor-to-ceiling windows that look east. And so I look out in the morning and I can watch the sun rise up over the horizon. It's a great way to start your day. Everything that you experienced yesterday is done in the light of that new bright morning. And so that sunrise, that dawn, um, is a great symbol for the hope that David has. And the second symbol that he uses is um, new growth. How many of us, as winter comes to its close, look for the new growth that happens all around us, the little green shoots pushing forth. I was very pleased, actually, after moving here. I sort of assumed it would be like Florida because it's so far south. It's further south than I've ever lived to be here in Birmingham. And I'm so thrilled to have seasons. I loved watching the, I was so surprised, but I loved watching the leaves turn last year and say, oh, there's a fall here. And I loved last spring watching the green shoots come forth, come up out of the ground. And it happens a lot earlier here than it did um, anywhere else, than it does anywhere else I've lived. So there's that green shoot pushing forth. So David had hope for the future and his hope um, is alluded to, his faith is alluded to when um, the author of the letter to the Hebrews in the New Testament. In chapter 11, he talks about all these great heroes of the faith, these Old Testament heroes, and and David is included in that bunch because David looked to the future with great hope even at the end of his life, even though he didn't see the fulfillment of God's promises. And so Hebrews 11 says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. David has great faith even at the end of his life. He knows that God's steadfast love endures forever and that his promises are good. He will make good on his promises. And so um, the people of Israel, even long after David's death, were still looking back to the promise made in 2 Samuel 7, that God would bring a Davidic king who would rule and reign forever. And so um, we too live by faith. 
And it's important to look at David's faith because his faith is like the kind of faith that we have to have today. And I'm going to explain that a little bit more once we start to talk some more about Jesus. That's a little teaser. Um, we also need to have faith like David. Um, and how do we have faith like David except by remembering and trusting in the promises of God? And the reason we can trust in God's promises, or the reason why we can trust in his promises, it's because his character is unwavering. He is faithful and steadfast. His love endures forever. He does not change, even though all the things around us change. And so as we continue on, we're just going to touch very lightly on some of these psalms that allude to this covenant, this promise that God made to David that is not just a promise for David as he is there on his deathbed (laughs) hoping for the future, but it's a promise for the people of God, a promise for the people of Israel first, and then for the newly constituted uh, people of God, those of us who believe in Jesus Christ. We are like a new Israel a new people of God, and we're, um, we're a part of the people of God because we believe in Jesus. Um, so in um, we see this echo of sonship. If you look down on your sheet, I have Psalm 2, verse 7. That echo of sonship, do you see that theme? Is I'm, I'm all about the tapestry, bringing up the thread that was there before. And here do you see the thread of sonship that, Dave, that was said to David in 2 Samuel 7 is brought back in Psalm 2. And there the psalmist says, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you, and this is the king speaking, whether it's King David or another king, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. And again, Hebrews brings that verse right back. And it says, that is about Jesus. That is about Jesus because he's God's son. And he's God's son in a different way than um, anyone had ever hoped or expected. Because he's greater even than the angels. He's greater than any other um, person in heaven or on earth. So um, in Psalm 2, we have that sonship theme brought back in. In Psalm 18:50, David there says, Great salvation the Lord brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. Great salvation the Lord brings to his king and to his people through his king. And Psalm 18 is a psalm of deliverance that we studied in this class. And we looked at how um, in the midst of very dire trouble, God delivered David out of, um, out of very real trouble, out of um, having his life sought for by someone else. And he then set him on the throne. He established his throne. And so that salvation or deliverance was something the Lord brought about on behalf of his king and his people. And so here's that. Echo, do you see this thread? This is the next thread from 2 Samuel 7 that's brought in, and it's brought in here in Psalm 18. The Lord shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. That idea of anointing, um, the anointing of the kings were anointed in particular. Do you remember that King Saul is anointed and then King David is anointed? And that anointing is with oil, very literally, and it's anointing for a specific purpose. Um, a sign of the power of God resting upon someone for a special purpose in order to, in order to him, empower him to do God's will. And so kings of Israel and Judah were always anointed um, with oil as a part of their rising to the throne. They were anointed with oil. And, it, and so were the priests as well as other people. It's interesting to see this idea of anointing. But when it says the Lord's anointed, as it does here in Psalm 18, the word anointed is actually what we have for um, Messiah. The word Messiah comes from the Hebrew that means anointed. 
the anointed one. So Jesus Christ is the, the Messiah, the anointed one. And Messiah is the Hebrew version of the Greek word Christ. So Christ is not Jesus' last name, it's his title. It is, his rec- it is the recognition that he is the anointed one of God. He is the long-awaited Messiah. And so what we see in um, Psalm 89, Psalm 89 has also this reference to the covenant. You have said, I've made a covenant with my chosen one. I've sworn to David, my servant, I will establish your offspring forever. But Psalm 89, if you were to go home and read Psalm 89, what you would find is that there's this first part that's very positive, that remembers this covenant and refers to this covenant. And then about two-thirds of the way through, things start tanking. There's this remembrance of the covenant, and and yes, Lord, you said this, you promised this. And then the psalm starts to say, well, what in the world is going on? If this is what you promised, then why is this what's going on? Why have you deserted the anointed one? And um, he says, but now, and this is in verse 38 of Psalm 89. You should be glad I didn't read the whole psalm for you today. Not today. Um, But now you are cast off. And rejected. This is the king who has been cast off and rejected. Or, um, and then it says of the Lord, you are full of wrath against your anointed. You have renounced the covenant with your servant. You have defiled his crown in the dust. What does that mean? Well, it's two things. It applies both to the literal fallen human only offspring of David when they disobeyed the Lord and they experienced his discipline and his judgment and that was just judgment for their sin and their offense against him but it also applies to great David's greater son to the Messiah Jesus Christ in that when Jesus was there on the cross he bore upon himself the sin of the whole world and as he bore that sin he was then counted as a sinner by God. God looked to him even though he was sinless and as his wrath was upon Jesus Christ Jesus Christ was the one forsaken of God and that's why he says in uh, quotes from the cross my God my God why have you forsaken me Jesus is forsaken so that we might be saved Jesus goes willingly to the cross in order to redeem us so that our sin would be laid on him and that his righteousness would then cover us. And that's how we are forgiven. That this um, this son of David, this holy one, who is in fact holy in all of his own actions and deeds, righteous, and yet he deigns to die the death of an unrighteous one. And we see that um, expected, prophesied, even in the Psalms. And David, un- er, and Jesus, in his own lifetime, understands his calling in light of the covenant to David, in light of the sonship, in light of all that was expected of the Messiah. But he also takes on the suffering servant imagery in Isaiah. And he takes that and he says, that is also about me. Um, he says, that is also about me and that will happen to me. He knows that he will suffer. He knows that he will die and yet he knows also he believes he will live again. And so that's what we see in Psalm 110 and this is quoted all throughout this scripture but it's quoted both by Jesus to refer to himself and then it's also quoted in Hebrews to refer to Jesus. And in Psalm 110 it says the Lord says to my Lord and my Lord here is the Messiah. The Lord says to my Lord sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. 
sit at my right hand. And that is used of reference to Jesus because the one who died has also been raised from the dead. And he was raised from the dead so that we might have new and eternal life. And then he ascended into heaven. And he is seated now at the right hand of the Father. There's that idea of sitting down. Jesus sat down at the right hand of the Father and that signifies that um, it is finished. The work of salvation is done. And I think of that and I say, well, yes, the work of salvation is done, but why are we in such pain now? Why does sin persist in my own heart, my own life? Why do I see it even more so in other people? Or why do I see it in our world at large? Why are we in such dark times? Why are we suffering so much when we see people dying? Um, When we live in this time of grief and sorrow and suffering, what is going on? Well, we know that Jesus is, we live between Jesus' first and his second coming. He reigns from heaven, and we know that he is the king, the expected coming king, the offspring of David, because he did conquer death, but not all on earth yet see who he is. And I'm I'm reminded of that phrase, from um, the Lord of the Rings, which I'm such I'm such a Tolkien nerd, and I feel like I bring it up every Advent. So if I do, just tell me, uh, Deborah, you've already said that. But um, one of my favorite characters, if you've read the books or you've seen the movie, the one of my favorite characters is Aragorn, the Ranger. And if you know about him, or if you know anything about him, he's a king in exile, a king who has not yet ascended to his throne who's not yet recognized by all as king, and yet he does things that some see and say, who is that? What's going on? He must be someone special. And one of the wizards, well, Gandalf, I believe it is, quotes to the hobbits this um, poem, and he says, not all that glitters is gold. And he uses it to refer specifically to this hidden king, this king who will one day be revealed as the king overall. And that's, in fact, what happens at the end of the book. The third book is called The Return of the King. And so we live right now in these dark times. We know the secret. We know the truth that Jesus Christ is the king, that he has already won, that he has conquered sin, death, and the devil. And yet we wait. We long for his second coming because there at his second coming, All evil will be completely gone. We won't suffer, we won't die anymore, and every tear will be wiped away, as it says in Revelation. And so we see signs now, like little green shoots coming up. But when he returns, it will be full-blown spring. And so we wait, and we wait, and we put our hope and our trust in him, because like David at the end of his life, in those dark days, even as he was dying, We say with faith and with hope, we trust in God because his promises are sure and certain and steadfast, because his character is good and loving. He loves us and he will not fail, even all appearances to the contrary. So let's pray. So dear Lord God, I pray that you would enter in with the light of your truth and the hope that we have through Jesus. Enter in into our hearts, each one of us, um, as we face whatever darkness we face today, whether it's darkness within or darkness without. It's probably both, and you know it all. You've seen it, and we can't hide. But yet you, your light, will shine in. And so we ask, come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Shine in our dark hearts. Shine in our dark world. 
and come back. Um, Let us live forever with you, we ask and we pray and we trust. And we ask all of this in your name, Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.